Well, good morning. Doing well today? Fantastic. Let me, let me begin by asking you a question. Who here, it's kind of an easy one, we're going to start off easy, who here likes getting gifts? Yeah, some hands shot up quicker than others, but I think most hands should be going up. If you're watching online, you can type yes, please, into the, the comments there. Uh, now, I, I don't have any gifts to give you. I would considered maybe, maybe, maybe giving everybody some gifts, but maybe this sermon could count. As a gift. How about that? We'll offer that to you. Uh, let me ask you a follow-up question, though. This one, maybe a few less hands. Who enjoys giving gifts? Who are gift givers? Yeah. Okay, there's, there's a bunch of us. All right. So let's see again. Who enjoys getting? Giving? So, okay. So if you're a giver, look around. Who enjoys getting? <laughs> Who enjoys giving? Right. <laughs> so one final question for you. Have you ever received a gift that you just really didn't want? <laughs> that somebody was, yes, absolutely, a lot of hands go up. Uh, and maybe, maybe it's like a photo radar ticket or a rather large tax bill you weren't expecting. But I don't, I don't mean those kind of gifts. I mean a, a gift that somebody was really, really excited to give you, but your response didn't quite match their enthusiasm when, when they gave it to you. I saw a video this week online of a cat who wanted to bring home a gift to his owners of a mouse. He seemed pretty proud walking through the door with a mouse. His, his owners didn't respond the same way, especially when he dropped the mouse and it was still alive. The response was completely different than probably the cat was expecting. I also read a story this week about a Canadian lady who went to work as an English teacher in South Korea for a year. And she worked for a wonderful organization, had a great boss, and Christmas came around and he wanted to give gifts to all the employees, and particularly to her, because you know, she was from a new country, and they're getting to know each other and, and kind of share cultures a little bit. And so with great pride, with, with incredible excitement, he, he offered her this beautifully wrapped gift. And she was quite, quite pleased and excited to open it. And as she took the paper off, she was surprised, because inside was a holiday gift set of spam. Spam, canned meat. Yeah, canned meat that you can't give away in Canada at the peak of the pandemic. But it's a beautiful gift, different sizes, beautiful packaging, all in a box with some special oils that you can put on top, because I guess spam needs more oil to, to put in there, right? And he presents it to her. It turns out in, in South Korea, spam is a delicacy. Because after World War II, with all the American bases that were set up, they were shipping a lot of different canned meats in. And this one in particular became very, very popular and symbolic of different things for them. And it caught on has become a delicacy. Now, I imagine as she received this gift, that she knew what she needed to do. You graciously smile and you say thank you, but the, but the inside feelings don't match the outside expressions necessarily, do they? At least they don't measure up to the excitement of the gift giver and maybe other people within that culture who understood, who could feel the genuine joy and the significance and value of such a treasured gift. Now, over the past three weeks, we've been talking about the meaning, the significance, the, the implications of one of God's greatest gifts to us, that being the, the gift of grace. 
And we've defined grace as the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor and blessing that God gives to us that, that we can receive. And so far, the last three weeks, we focused upon how this extravagant, valuable gift, which is treasured above all else, like, like Jesus described grace in some of other parables that we didn't look at as, as like a pearl of such great value that a merchant would give up everything to obtain it. This gift of grace, we focus upon the implications of receiving it and making it our own. But today as we conclude this series, I want you to consider if we understand the value of God's grace, if we really understand it as this treasured possession that he gives to us, how should that impact us? How should it impact us and and the world around us? Is it something that that we receive from God and we just kind of keep hidden? Or is it something that we should receive from God and have on display for all to see? In particular, on display for all to see in in our relationships with others. Not just in our relationship, our response to God, but but in all others as well. Because you see, the gift of grace is freely given by God. But don't mistake freely given with cheap. Because it's not cheap. It calls us to follow in the example of Jesus. In particular, in the example of Jesus to extend genuine love and mercy and forgiveness and grace to all people. And this is one of the lessons that Jesus taught his disciples through a parable. And like a lot of his parables, it was in response to a question that they had for him. And we find the context of this in Matthew chapter 18, if you want to open your Bibles and follow along. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is teaching his disciples initially about how to respond or how to deal with a person who has done a wrong against you. And and, and very, very briefly and short, he basically says, if if that happens, if somebody sins against you, then the first thing you need to do is you need to go to that person privately and try to resolve the matter just between the two of you. If you don't find success in that, then, then the next step is, is to take like an impartial mediator with you to discuss the issue further with the person. And, and hopefully you can come to some resolution there. If it's a matter of rivalry or disagreement or misunderstanding, that hopefully that mediator can, can draw that out and help you come back to a place of reconciliation. If that still doesn't work, Jesus says, well, the third step is if, if the mediator agrees that sin exists in the situation, but there's no change or acceptance of that, then we take it to the church, to, to church leadership. And they will arrive at a final decision, and this is in order to protect the church and, 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 and the faith as a whole with the hope of restoring this person who has stepped out of bounds back into fellowship. Now, as Jesus is teaching this in in Matthew chapter 18, Peter's taking notes. And he asks a follow-up question. And this follow-up question shows that he's listening. And it shows that he's been learning over the long run. He says this in Matthew 18, verse 21. He says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Um, Up to seven times? See, Peter maybe had somebody in mind, Judas, as he was thinking about this question. But essentially the question he's asking is, Jesus, I I understand the process. I see the logic and the value. And and yeah, I I will follow that process. But Jesus, what do we do with the repeat offender? 
with a person who just kind of over and over again tends to get into these situations. And Peter kind of knew the answer already. Like the Jewish tradition of the time that was familiar to him was that you were to forgive a person three times. Three strikes and you're out though. Because they believe that after three attempts at forgiveness, if no reconciliation or forgiveness is impossible, then that person has exhausted their hope of being forgiven. And so Peter shows that he's learning here because he knows that Jesus' standard is going to be higher than that. And so at three times two is six, and let's just add one more for good measure, seven. Jesus, is it, is it seven times? But then Jesus' answer kind of shocks him. He says, no, Peter. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or some translations will say seven times, 70 times. Seven times, 70, 490 times. Peter does that math really quick in his head and thinks, I'm going to need a notebook for that. Like, I can't count that on my fingers and toes. I'm going to have to keep a track. I'm going to have to write that down in a notebook every time I have to forgive a person. To which Jesus essentially says, exactly. You can't keep track. Don't keep score. Because the forgiveness I want you to follow, the forgiveness I want you to know about, Peter, is not a matter of quantity. It's a matter of quality. And he then proceeds to tell a parable that begins by saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. Which, again, is our cue that Jesus is describing something from God's point of view on the matter. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like, he says. And he proceeds to tell a story about a king who decides to settle some accounts with all of his servants. And and in this situation, these servants have been able to borrow from the king and amass rather large amounts of money. But the time comes to sell the accounts. And so the king calls them in one by one. And one particular servant comes in rather nervous as he walks into the king's court. And soon everyone knows why. Because as it's read out the size of his debt, it's declared that he owes the king 10,000 talents. Now we don't often measure things in talents. But a talent is basically 20 years worth of wages. And he owes 10,000 of those. I wanted to figure out roughly how much money that was. You're probably wondering the same thing. So I, I did the math for you. I got my calculator out. And I took even just like minimum wage. So I, I put in the minimum wage times 40 hours a week times 52 weeks in a year times 20 years times 10,000 year, 10, of those. And the answer was that my calculator broke. It, it, it couldn't, it, it's that big of a number, but that's kind of the point. You see, Jesus is using this example, this, this exaggeration to an absurd amount to put forward the point that it's meaningless how much money it actually was. The point is, it would take thousands of lifetimes for this man to pay back what he owed the king. And so he's not able to settle the account, obviously. And so, therefore, the king declares that he and his entire family are to be sold into slavery. All of their possessions liquidated because the king's going to try and recoup even just a fraction of what's owed to him. It's going to amount to a drop in the bucket, but something's better than nothing, I suppose. Well, as the king makes this decision, we read in verse 26 that at this the servant fell to his knees before him. And he said, be patient with me, king. Be patient with me. I, I will pay it all back, he begged. 
And the servant's master had pity on him. And he canceled the entire debt and he let him go. See, both the king and the servant knew that this request was ridiculous. What is more time going to provide? It's going to provide only a delay in the inevitability of the end. So there's no reason to grant more time. But the master is moved with compassion by the plea that he makes. He doesn't offer him more time. He doesn't reduce the payment. He, he doesn't offer a payment plan. He offers him absolution. He just, he just wipes the slate clean, cancels the debt entirely, and tells him that you are free to go. If you have ever carried a sizable debt, a sizable financial debt, you know, now or in the past, you know the weight. Like, you know the financial burden that you wake up with and that you live with and that is just on you all the time. Back a number of years ago, when Nadine and I were transitioning from living in BC and our careers there to coming to Edmonton so I could go to university to, to, to start the path towards being a pastor, I was at a point where we had basically we had quit our jobs, we had sold everything, and we are in the transitional point, and, and we really owed, like, like we owned nothing at the time because it was in that transitional moment. And just then, I got a letter in the mail from CRA who had decided to audit a company I worked for four years earlier, and they determined that what I had received on taxable benefit was actually a taxable benefit, and now going back retroactively four years plus interest, I owed them $7,200. In that moment, I can still feel it to this day of thinking, it's over, cancel Edmonton, we're not being pastors, forget it, it's over, we're going to get jobs, we're going to pay this back, it's done. It was just this defeating weight. Now, a few weeks later, we were blessed by receiving another letter from Sierra. Sorry, we made a mistake. <laughs> I remember that feeling as well, which started with a, right? But then it turned to, oh, this, this weight lifted off of my shoulders, like excitement for the future again, joy inside my heart for, for resuming the path forward, a little, little skip in the step as you go out. Now, now like you, Jesus is audience is probably already figuring out the meaning of this parable so far. You see, God is this powerful king who, who waits patiently as people build up a, a debt of sin. But the time eventually comes to settle the account, and they're not able to do so. But he is a righteous king, yet he is a gracious king. And so he extends forgiveness to all of those. And, and that's what we read about in, for example, Titus verses 3, 4, and 5, where it says, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. And you know, folks, essentially that's what we've been talking about the past three weeks, about grace from God's point of view which is not based upon our righteous acts or our righteous attitudes, but it's based upon any person who acknowledges their need for mercy. And since we didn't earn it, since we don't deserve it, in all cases, it doesn't matter who you are, in all cases, in all times, in all situations, God's grace is a gift that is generously offered to all people equally. And this incredible gift, this, this amazing gift of grace is so powerful. It's so abundant that it can cover all debts 
of all people for all times as long as people are willing to welcome the king and the gift into their lives. So people were trying to figure out, and they could already kind of get a sense, this is what the parable was starting to be about. But you may be wondering, as some of Jesus' audience, what does that have to do with Peter's question about how many times must forgiveness be extended? Well, we start to see a bit of the answer as the parable continues. You see, this servant who has just been forgiven goes out, and he's, he's going to go tell his family. They're going to celebrate this good news. And as he's walking out of the palace, he gets to the edge of the courtyard, and he sees across the courtyard a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. It's not, it's not a small amount of money. Remember, we learned a couple weeks ago that a denarii was equal to a day's worth of wage. And so a hundred denarii is like three months' salary. It's, it's thousands of dollars. Not a small amount of money. Insignificant compared to what he's just been forgiven, but not a small amount of money. And he's thinking to myself, this guy's been ducking me for weeks. Could my day be getting any better? I've just been forgiven all of my debt. I'm even now. But, you know, I'm going to get to collect off this guy, and I'm going to be ahead of the game. And so he grabs him. He takes him by the throat, pushes him against the wall, and demands, pay me back what you owe me. At this, his fellow servant fell to his knees, and this might sound familiar, and he began to beg him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything I owe you. Well, the roles have just shifted here a little bit. The, the forgiven servant is now in the place of authority, in, in the place of choice. It's a lot of money that he's owed. Again, not an irrelevant amount compared you know, to a day's wage, but it is somewhat insignificant compared to what the king has just forgiven him. But it is a manageable amount that he could pay back. Will he grant him more time? Will he offer a payment plan? Maybe he will show mercy. No. This servant proves to have the memory of a goldfish. A couple seconds. Unmoved by the mercy that was just shown to him mere moments ago, he demands strict justice in the matter. And so it says that he refused, and instead he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the full debt. Thrown into prison is this debtor's prison, where it's odd that he would throw him in there to pay him back because you can't make money when you're in debtor's prison. See, but what happens is it forces your friends and your family to get drawn into it. Because your friends and your family have to come up with the money to pay back the debt, and once they do that, they can secure release. And so the injury against this fellow servant not only harm him, it also harms all of those around him. Well, all of this took place in a rather public area. There's other servants who heard and saw all that went down. They're kind of troubled by what they saw. Because they knew the mercy that the king had extended to this one servant. And it's a talk of the palace. Like this was a significant gift that the king had given to this guy. And now they see this taking place. And they're troubled by it. And they think, well, how are we going to respond? They, they decide to go tell the king. And when the king hears what's gone down, he is outraged. Outraged. And he orders that this unforgiving servant be brought before him. And he says to him in verse 32, Then the master called the servant in and said, You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? Calls him wicked. After all you've been forgiven, 
after the enormity of the debt that I forgave, you refuse to be forgiving to your fellow servant. Do you not understand the value of what you received? Do you not appreciate the gift I gave you? Do you somehow think you deserved it, that you, that you earned it, and that you're worthy of it? If you did, you would have seen it as grace. And if you'd seen it as grace, wouldn't it have inspired you to show mercy to another person? And in anger, he reverses the decision. And he hands this man over to the jailers, where he will face the full brunt of the debt. If you want to demand strict justice, you will certainly get strict justice. And then Jesus ends the parable with this rather troubling warning for all who would seek God's mercy. He says in verse 35, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother and sister from the heart. Peter's probably feeling a little sore he asked the question at this point. Jesus more than seven times would have been sufficient is what he was hoping for. But he gets this, this, this shattering remark instead that God will not forgive us unless we forgive others. I wish I could step back and, and say, well, when we, when we parse the Greek verbs and we put it in its context, it, it actually means this. But, but no, it, it means what it says. And this wasn't the first time that Jesus talked about this either. A few chapters earlier, when, when Jesus was asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us how to pray. He taught them the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer being a series of six petitions that we can offer to God. And only one of them does Jesus amplify. Which one is it? Forgive us as we forgive. And he amplifies it by saying this in Matthew chapter 6. Is, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive them their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. It's basically the same teaching that we see in Matthew 18. Now, we have to be careful with this. Because this can make forgiveness appear to be a condition upon salvation. But I think it's rather best understood as a symptom of true salvation. Let me show you what I mean by that. See, last week we learned that through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, whether they're a follower of Christ or not, the part of the Holy Spirit's job is to convict people of their sin, of their wrongdoings, of their waywardness, and to draw them towards Christ so they can experience his teachings, his example, and ultimately his sacrifice and his love that brings forgiveness. And, and by doing that, they receive God's forgiveness. And one result of a person who, who responds to the work of the Holy Spirit is that they are gradually shaped into the image of Christ. And, and that shaping into the image of Christ includes a, a, a sense of kindness and compassion and forgiveness to others. Essentially, a person, we bring to others what we have received from him. Now, not to do so, to not respond to those promptings of the Holy Spirit, we consider denying the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life and in the world around us. And we talked last week about how denying the work or, or blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit is what's, required, what's considered the unforgivable sin. Unforgivable sin, when a person does not welcome grace into their lives and you cannot share with others what you have not first brought in to your own life. 
This is essentially what 1 John 4.20, we read a few moments ago in the service, talks about. When it says, whoever claims to love God but doesn't love their brother or sister or, or hates their brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. There's a, a legend. We don't know if it's true or not, but it's an interesting legend that helps us understand this point a bit better too. About the painter... Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, who was painting the, the Last Supper, a, a very timely portrait as we're entering into uh, the Passion Week here. And it's talked about as he was painting each of the disciples around the table at the Lord's Supper. He got to Judas, and, and as he was painting each person, he had a, 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 a person in the world that he knew in mind as he painted their faces. And he got to Judas, and he thought of a, an enemy in his life. Because he wanted that inspiration, essentially, to, to paint the enemy of Christ. And he, he painted Judas' face that way. And then, and then he went and, and started to paint Jesus' face. But he wasn't able to do so. And he was so troubled in his spirit, he couldn't paint the face of Christ. Until he went back and blotted out the face of Judas that he painted. And, and, and then paused and, and, and extended forgiveness in his heart to this enemy of his in his life. And only after that was he then feeling free to paint a portrait of the face of Christ. See, this might help us make sense of Jesus' closing comment, which can seem rather erratic, where, where at first he demands harsh payment, but then he offers remarkable kindness, but, but then he's back again to, to harsh repayment. You see, the problem in that situation is not God's willingness to forgive. The problem is never God's willingness to forgive. The problem is the barriers erected with our unforgiveness. The barriers we erect with our unforgiveness. Because a heart that is closed to the forgiveness of others is not able to understand nor receive the incredible, treasured, valuable gift of grace that God extends to us. But when it does, when a heart does receive and does start to understand through the work of the Holy Spirit, that heart is transformed. And as it's transformed, it can then give what it has received, and it can give grace, and it can give forgiveness where it doesn't seem like it belongs. Therefore, Jesus does answer Peter's question in a way. He, he didn't give him a number. Jesus was hoping for a number. You know, Jesus, is it 12? I suggested seven. You start at 12. Maybe we can negotiate down to 10. He was hoping for a number, but Jesus did answer his question just in a different way. He said, Peter, if you are seeking limits to forgiveness, you don't understand the divine grace. Because God's grace is not only able to forgive you, it's able to transform you. And if it transforms you, it will flow through you into the lives of others. Now, at some level, we all understand this. We even teach this to our kids since they're toddlers, because this is based upon a principle of reciprocity. See, the principle of reciprocity is, we don't often use that word, but essentially what that is, is the idea that if, if somebody shows kindness to you or favor to you, that, that it's proper to respond with kindness. This principle of reciprocity. And we see it in the simplest ways. When, when we, grandpa takes his grandson to go get an ice cream cone. And the lady behind the counter hands it to his grandson. He goes, now what do you say, son? Thank you. Reciprocity. I've given you this gift of ice cream. You say thank you in return. Christmas, we open our gifts. 
We see all the wonderful things our family has given us, and then we FaceTime with Grandma. and We say, thank you, Grandma, for the sweater. It's less itchy this year than last year. Right? Reciprocity. Even if we get a gift pack of spam, reciprocity. We don't have to smile and say thank you because it's not just about the gift, it's about the gesture as well. And keeping this principle in mind actually helps us understand why the servant, the unforgiving servant, did what he did. You see, because when the king canceled the debt of money, the king actually created a new form of debt based upon the principle of reciprocity. He created a debt that he owed the king of gratitude, of loyalty, a, a debt of honor, a debt of diligent service for the rest of my life because of how much you have given me. And the servant was fine with that. He would have served and been agreeable and joyful to the, in the king's service for the rest of his lifetime because he assumes that that transaction existed between two parties. And he had no problem serving the king, showing gratitude to the king. I'm only obligated to the king. And that explains the basis of how he could receive that gift, but then also act the way he did in his action towards the other servant. You see, the prevailing culture of the day saw that this was accurate. That reciprocity only required you to give back to the person who had first given to you. That was a closed transaction between two people. But remember, Jesus started the parable by saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Things are different from God's point of view. And from God's point of view, the unforgiving servant is dismayed to find out that it's not a closed transaction. That the grace that he received from the king should be extended in his relationship to all other people, even those who had no part in the original transaction. And this is not unrelated. It's also connected to what Jesus said and will come to be known as the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. There's this vertical relationship. Love the God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The servant got that part. He got that part. But then Jesus continues, he goes, but the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So when we experience and understand the gracious mercy of God, we, we love and get the idea that yes, we need to respond to him. We're clear on that aspect. But Jesus' audience looked at the unforgiving servant and didn't quite understand that second part. And that's where it gets more complex, is understanding that second part. Why, why would the benefit we receive from God extend to a disinterested party? Why, why would they benefit from what I receive from God when, when they don't even deserve it? When, when, when they didn't earn it? I'm not even sure if they value it. What right do they have to what I've received from God if they don't deserve it, earn it, or value it? But isn't that how we define grace? Unmerited favor? Aren't we to follow in the example of Jesus who extended grace and forgiveness? Who extended grace to all? Who was known as the friend of sinners and tax collectors? He was the one who always hung up with the other, who was always on the outside with the other, trying to extend grace and, and forgiveness. Isn't that grace? Unmerited favor? Theologian Edward Schweizer says, God's gracious forgiveness is not for decoration. 
It's for use. And one of the great tragedies of the church throughout history are people who live like the unforgiving servant, who understand their indebtedness to the king, accept his forgiveness, and, and, and genuinely, gratefully respond to the king. But, but they fail then to put that into practice in the relationship with others, to extend the same grace and the same mercy that they themselves have received. And folks, this is critical. It's critical when we engage with the surrounding community around us who do not know Jesus Christ. If we're going to build authentic relationships with them and introduce them that they can find new life in Christ, it's, it's critical that we're willing to extend mercy and grace, the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ. But it is no less necessary within our worshiping community, amongst the fellowship of believers within the church. This also needs to be practiced as well. Because remember the context parable. Peter was not asking about the surrounding community. Peter was asking about how many times must I forgive my brother and my sister? How many times must I forgive somebody who is in the fellowship of faith with me? That's the primary place this needs to be lived out. The primary place in which we live out the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness is within the worshiping community of Christ. And when it's not lived out, the end result is that it creates this need for facade. This need for a facade of perfection. Like, I don't, I don't, you know, you don't need to give me any grace or mercy because I've got it all together. There just isn't freedom to be truthful and authentic on things when they're not going well. And it causes people inside the church to hide their struggles, to hide their doubts, and not really ever find resolution and healing for them. And it caused people on the outside of the church to look in and go, I know you're not that perfect. I know you haven't got it all together. And then they find the label of hypocrite. You see, folks, the church, if you just take one thing away from this, this one phrase. The church is the society of the forgiven. You see, my sin, when I confess it, is what lets me into the church. It's not what keeps me out. My sin when I can keeps me out. And when we talk about forgiveness, I, I'm not speaking about some softness or, or sentimentality. Because the get against, while the debt against us pales in comparison to the debt that we have against God, I appreciate in the parable how Jesus positioned the smaller debt as still being of a significant size. Because the sins that are committed against us matter. They are wrong. And they need to be held to account. But the message is, is not that wrongs against us are inconsequential. The message is not that things that are done against us, we just need to forgive and forget. That's not true nor healthy. You see, forgiveness can remove the arrow, but the wound will heal, but a scar will remain. We even see this in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When he was nailed upon that cross, he paid the price for our sins. When he was taken down and buried in the tomb, on the third day he rose again. When he rose again and appeared to his disciples, bringing forgiveness and grace and mercy to all, as he stood before them, the marks were still in his hands. The marks were still in his feet of the one who paid the price. Because grace is freely given, but it is not cheap. It is costly. It costs the king millions of dollars in this parable. But as we enter into Passion Week this week, the final days leading up to Jesus dying on our place upon the cross. We understand that it is costly because grace cost him his life. But it is grace because it gives us new life. 
It's costly because it condemns sin, but it's grace because it justifies the sinner. It's costly because it cost God his one and only son, but it is grace because he did not consider the price of his son too high a cost for you. And that is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wretch who was once so indebted to sin, never able to repay. Therefore I was once lost, but then I was found. But I was blind, but now I see. Because of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. We are made new. We're set free to live in this glorious mercy of the Heavenly Father. But not just to keep to ourselves. To worship, to glorify, to honor and proclaim. But also to share with the world around us.